Welcome to the Parkview Church Training Podcast, where we equip you to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. I'll, I'll start with something someone asked me just in the break. Um, I mentioned in the first session or second, I forget which, I mentioned um, that I, I wasn't married. Um, someone said, you've got a ring on your like, wedding finger. Um, which I actually semi forgotten I had. Um, so uh, this is not a wedding ring. I'm not. I'm not married. When I talked about my housemate, you guys say roommates, don't you? In England, a roommate is someone you share a room with, and a housemate is someone you share a house with. And I <laughs> share a house with two or three other guys, so hence housemates. Um, anyway, this 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 is actually um, this is a, a there's a little story to this. I have something called Crohn's disease. And the, the hospital I, I receive treatment from in the UK is a, is a research center for Crohn's disease, as it happens. And every now and then they ask if some of us can help with research projects and, and the like. And they're doing a project at the moment on Crohn's and stress. And so they said, we need volunteers to do this for six months. And I thought, well, I, I can help. If it's going to help you treat what I have, that's in my interests, right? So part of it is, this is a smart ring. I didn't know these things existed until they gave me one. So it tracks my heart rate, my sleep cycles. It's probably recording me right now or, or something. Um, so when I, I went for the, the sort of, to get sort of inducted into this research thing, I, there's other things I have to do as part of it as well, but they said, I w we'll give you one of the rings. And I said, is it? I've not worn a smart ring before. Does it have to go on a particular finger? Are there certain things that are better for all the rest of this? And the nurse said, just, just stick it on your ring finger. That's what everyone else does. So I did as I was told. And as I was walking out of the, the hospital, I thought, I can't, I can't wear a ring there. That's, that's, you're meant to be married if you wear a ring there. That's, that's a sign that you're married in our culture. And then I stopped, and I had just that past month been studying a book of the Bible called Song of Songs which is all about, well, one of the things it's about is what it means for Jesus to be the bridegroom. And I remember walking out of this hospital thinking, hang on, Song of Songs teaches me that Jesus is pursuing me, uh, that I belong to Jesus. I'm, a, I'm in a marriage-like covenant with Jesus. That might sound very weird, to some of us who are unfamiliar with Christian things, or indeed to some of us who are familiar with, with Christian things. But I remember thinking, if, if part of the cultural message of wearing a ring here is that I'm, I'm spoken for and I belong to someone, that's true. I am and I do. So that's why I wear a ring on this. I have to wear it for this project for the next few months. Um, they said I can keep it after that. I'll probably keep it on because it's a reminder to me that I... I'm pledged to Jesus. Um, I'm not used to wearing a ring, so it, I can feel it on me, and it's a, it's a good reminder to me of my relationship with Jesus. I hope that makes some sense. Just in case you were wondering. Someone always spots it. Hey, can you, hello. Um, yes, so um, with your preaching, it's just I find it very interesting. I myself as a part gay man, you know, who struggle a lot, you know, with my sexuality and also growing up in a society where men are expected to be masculine, where you cannot be very flamboyant, 
and also with shame that you get you know, from people who claim to be Christian and where I've come to peace with myself, to accept myself the way I am and to, come to accept my existence. Um, so you say that in order to have peace with God, you know, you, you, you need to stop continuing with that disgrace and to be in denying with yourself. So I, I, I'm not sure that I, I really understand what you tried to say with that. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for sharing that and for, for being here. There's, there's lots to think about there with what you've just, with what you've just raised. One of the things I, I'd, I'd certainly want to say is that um, I think the Bible shows us a wider range of what it can look like to be men and women than we typically see in our culture and that we often see in our church culture. Uh, we often have stereotypes of this is what guys do, this is what women do, this is what men are into, this is what women are into. Um, it strikes me that the Bible actually, sh again, shows us a wider range of what it can look like to be a man and what it can look like to be a woman. I want to mention that. So David in the, in the Old Testament, I think is a fascinating example because in some respects he checks the, the box of a cultural stereotype of what a guy is like. He slays people, you know, he's a, he was a warrior. So in that sense, he fits the kind of stereotype of, of a man. But at the same time, David was highly artistic. Um, he spent a lot of time playing a harp and writing poetry. Uh, those are not traits typically associated with, with masculinity, and yet David is, is held up as an example of a, of a biblical man. So I certainly want to make that point. Um, to, to the wider issue you've, you've raised, again, there's, there's a sense in which Jesus both affirms us and challenges us in the gospel. Um, he affirms us in the sense that, again, he, he speaks of us with such value and dignity and worth. Um, you see that there's a, a tenderness and a care in how Jesus interacts with people. Um, and if you read through the Gospels, there's such a wide range of people Jesus interacts with, people who are calling the shots in society, people who are, are way on the margins. And Jesus is always so dignifying to people. Um, so there is a sense of affirmation we receive from Jesus. It, it's actually in the message of Jesus, I think we understand our true worth to him, our true worth in this world. Um, Jesus considered us worth his while serving and, and giving up his life for. Um, that's astonishing. We, we, we assume if God comes to earth, it's to tell us how to do a better job of serving him. Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve. So he's in one sense, he's uniquely affirming of us and at the same time, uniquely challenging. And that, that's a universal thing. Um, that call to deny self and take up the, the cross is a way of saying all of us have stumbled into a way of being us that we've kind of become locked into and, and need him to bring us out of. Uh, that 
he's not singling any one type of person out in that. That's just the universal human condition. And so we will find as, as part of our discipleship that there are ways we have historically come to see ourselves that actually Jesus needs to do some work on and to, to renovate our own sense of, of identity and, and who we are. All of us have got ourselves wrong in one way or another. Um, and part of the, the, the gift of, of coming into relationship with Jesus is it's, it's in knowing our creator we discover who we truly are. We, we can't figure that out fully on our own. And so there's a, there's a lovely occasion in, in John chapter 4 where he, he meets this woman from Samaria who was, who was very disreputable in her own cultural context. And Jesus has this exchange with her and afterwards she goes back to her village and she says, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? There's a sense in which Jesus made sense of her life in the way that she couldn't make sense of her own. Um, and I think, I love those words of hers because I think those are words all of us can own. Uh, come and see someone who's, who's told me everything I ever did. He just made sense of me. So it is challenging, certainly, to, to follow Jesus. He's, he's calling us out of the self that we've become into the self that he had always intended us to be. I think that makes some sense. Um, and is there any, uh, you, I'm happy for you to follow up on that, unless anyone else is wanting to ask something first. I want to make sure everyone gets a chance. Feel free. Thank you. that we have to be in denial with ourselves. You know, if God created us, you know, the way that we are, and meaning that I don't have any power um, of the person that I did not choose to be who I am. So it's just like, why changing yourself? Just to, if God created me that way, then why do I have to change myself in order, you know, to feel accepted? That's yeah. what I'm trying to understand. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't appreciate that. Was the, that was the question. Um, that's such a helpful question. So there's, there's um, what, we, what we begin to see as we, as we come to terms with what Jesus is saying is that who we are is a product of two things. It's a product of, of how God has created us and a product of how sin has distorted us. And both of those things are true of all of us, which is why all of us have extraordinary value and worth, because all of us have been made by God. No one in this room is, is worthless. But at the very same time, none of us is who we're meant to be. We've all become distorted through sin. Um, what that means in practice is I can't simply read off from the way that I naturally am that this is how God has made me. Because there are things bound up with who I feel like I naturally am that contradict how God wants me to live. I'll give you a very trivial example. Um, and you can, you can see how it would apply to more serious areas of life. Um, I am very naturally an irritable driver. Um, I, don't, I don't need classes on how to be irritable. I just, that just <laughs> bubbles up out of me anytime there's, there's traffic. What I can't say 
is God has made me irritable. It may be a feature of my kind of natural self. It, it's not how God has made me. It's, it's part of how sin has left its imprint on me. Um, there's lots of aspects of my, of my personhood that reflect the way God has made me. And there's aspects of my personhood that reflect how sin has distorted me. And part of the challenge as we, as we kind of read the Bible is to understand which, which aspects are which, um, which, are, which are reflections of my God-given dignity as, a, as an image bearer, and which are reflections of my distortedness as a sinner. Um, so the, the, the person each of us arrives on planet Earth becoming is not simply who God created us to be. It's a mixture of who God created us to be and how sin has distorted God's image within us. Which is why we, we need, as Jesus says, to deny self. But as we do that, we don't become non-self. We become our true self. Um, he helps to undo the distortion of sin as he gives us new life in his name. Thank you for raising that. That's such a helpful question. Yeah. that conversation for, or how to have that conversation in spite of that barrier yeah thank you so much I'm sure you, you speak for many in the room who have those kinds of questions as well um, someone asked me once in a, in a public Q&A this is the question they asked I, I, it's a very blunt and direct question, I'm, I'm quoting them. Um, do gay people go to hell, yes or no? And I remember thinking, firstly, I think people deserve more than one syllable. So I'm, I'm not going to answer with that question in one syllable. And the answer I gave to the question was, if there's no hope for gay people, there's no hope for anyone. Because if I had said no to that question, I don't think I would have been answering truthfully. If I had said yes to that question, I would have been answering so incompletely that I fear it would have been misleading. Um, another, another occasion, um, a student came up to me after a... a talk I'd given and said, um, introduce yourself, said, I'm a lesbian, what is your response to that? What do you think about that? And I said to her, Jesus has some challenging things to say about sexuality to all of us. And she said, well, what does he say? And I took it to one or two of the texts that we've looked at tonight, Matthew 5, and said, he says, we're kind of broken in this part of life. Our desires are, are disordered and, and, and jumbled up. 
Um, and none of us is, is all that we should be, and we, we kind of distort what sexuality is for. I had a long conversation about that, and I didn't once mention her lesbianism. And the reason is because I, my, my sense was if I had simply said to her, the Bible says being a lesbian is a sin, what she would have heard was that she was being singled out, that she was being put in a particular category that other people weren't being put in. And so in both of those cases, what I'm trying to do is, is show how Jesus levels the playing field. So my, my MO in those kinds of conversations, I have, them, I have them frequently, is where there's an issue of so much understandable sensitivity, don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. So is, in the, the, the way you phrase it, is homosexuality a sin? Again, I, if I merely say yes to that question, I fear it's too incomplete. And I don't want anyone to feel singled out and got at. So I would answer by saying something like, Jesus says, every time we every time we go outside of God's design for sexuality, we're sinning. And he says, all of us do. Jesus says, every single one of us is a sexual sinner. Um, that is not a category that is unique to our gay friends. And I think part of where the, the, the church more broadly has not always handled this question wisely or well over the years is that I think we've been too ready to single out certain forms of sexual sin and to, to kind of publicly condemn those. And we've not been quick enough to recognize our own sexual sin, uh, that this is something that, that affects all of us. So I, I find that helps because, again, I'm, I'm not, to use the, the, the jargon of the day, I'm not othering someone else. I'm saying we're, we're in, whatever this is, we're in it together because all of us are, are sexual sinners in Jesus' eyes. So it's not actually about whether you're homosexual or not. It, it's about whether you are, are fallen or not, which all of us are. Um, I find that that can help to have the conversation because I'm implicating all of us in it then and not just one particular person. I hope that, I hope that makes some sense. Hey, thank you. Wow. Hi. <laughs> First off, thank you for speaking. And also, I promise, Iowa is not always cold and dreary. It can be nice sometimes. Hey, I'm from England, so I'm used to cold and wet. I'm just not <laughs> used to cold and snowy. Last year in England, summer, I think summer was on a Tuesday. <laughs> so nice. I, I get it. <laughs> okay, so... Oh, I was planning how to say this, and now I'm here and I don't know how to. So basically, I hear you talking, and not just you, a lot of other people talking about, I guess, a biblical view of romance and how you describe it so beautifully and paint such a wonderful picture of it and basically say that God cares about it so much. And I'm not denying any of this. I just... My own cynicism and mm -hmm. questions and, I guess, jaded view of 
romance come into play when I read through the Old Testament, and I'm a be honest, I'm putting this in the simplest way possible, women are kind of tossed aside, and romance is kind of tossed aside. I mean, there's polygamy, and in the, 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 sorry, in the Levitican laws, God basically says that if you find a woman attractive in a village you're raiding, you can take her, and I mean, I guess in my American view, I see that as sex trafficking, but it's not just that. It's also a part where God says, oh, you can kill women and children, but you can take virgins if you want to. And overall, I just don't understand how those two ideas can coexist. And this isn't to set aside the Old Testament or the Mm -hmm. Levitican laws because they are beautiful and they are God's word. And I mean, obviously, I just don't understand them, so I Thank guess you. I'd seek your viewpoint on this. Thank you. Thank you. you. For someone who wasn't sure how to phrase that, you phrased it very, very well. And you, you raised something so many of us are, are thinking through and, and wrestling with and, and trying to understand well. Um, you mentioned not wanting to become cynical. There's, there's so much... There are lots of reasons to be cynical. Um, it's hard not to be cynical in this world. Um, the, the one thing that stops me being cynical is, is, is Jesus and seeing who he is. Um, trying my best to understand what Jesus teaches on this hasn't yet given me a comprehensive understanding about every, every verse in the Bible. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated, I'm, I want to learn, I want to study, I want to read. I have a terrible memory. So I've looked up some of those, those passages you've, you've referenced. I wouldn't be able to give you chapter and verse as to where those things are. Um, and I've read compelling comments on, on what those verses meant in their context and, and, and so on, which I now can't remember what those things were. But... I have something to offer, which is um, a former colleague of mine um, is a speaker and scholar called Joe Vitale, um, V-I-T-A-L-E. I've known Joe for a number of years, and she has one of the, the bigger brains on the planet. And she did a whole PhD on the treatment of women in the Old Testament. And I've heard her speak to each of those passages and and share why she believes Jesus is good news for women. So I can't remember what she said, but I can remember that she said it. If you Google Joe Vitale, is Jesus good news for women? You, I'm hoping something she said of this is somewhere on, on YouTube or, or whatever. Um, that's the best I can give you for right now. Um, so thank you for, thank you for raising that. Um, there is much in the Old Testament that is, is either confusing or distressing. There are some things in the Old Testament that are meant to be distressing. There are examples given to us of human behaviors that we are not meant to emulate, even behaviors by people who are key figures in the Old Testament. Abraham's behavior at certain points is not to be emulated. And part of the tension of, of reading the Bible as, as a Christian is to to understand where the Bible is being descriptive and where it is being prescriptive. 
And I would certainly say that the examples of polygamy that you see in the Bible are no advert for polygamy. Um, they, they certainly don't commend it. Um, and I'd, I'd make that point more broadly and say the, the worked examples we have in the Bible of where people go outside of God's design for human intimacy, those examples don't commend those practices. So that's a very preliminary, incomplete answer, but it's best I can give you right now, I'm afraid. Thank you for raising that. Yeah. Hi, I think this goes under the simple but profound implications. Assuming, assuming God's chief and most important creation of the family is one of the reasons why and probably even the most important of reasons for the LGBTQ and the trans is to break that family down. And without them knowing it, it's a spiritual warfare that Satan is using these moments unknown by persons in these communities. Thank you. Um, there's a lot going on there. Um, we certainly see God's, God's design in lots of areas of life laid out for us in the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 supremely, of God's design for, for marriage being between a man and a woman. We see elsewhere in the Bible that's the, the context, ideally, for the raising of, of children and um, the human family. So we, we see a number of strands alongside each other in the Bible. One is that design for family life, and, and in the Bible that family life is often extended family life, um, not simply the nuclear family life, it incorporates a sort of the wider um, family as well. The other thing we see in, in the Bible is, is Jesus both reaffirming God's creation design for us and also at the same time, alongside that, giving us a very new definition of family. So, at one occasion in Mark chapter 3, when someone comes up to Jesus and says, hey, your, your family's outside, they're, they're looking for you, um, Jesus says, well, actually, my family are the people right around me right now, they're my disciples. So Jesus takes God's design for family expressed in, in kind of human physicality and biology, and lays over on top of it an, also a spiritual category for family as well. So we, we want to live with, with awareness of, of both of those models of family. And for those of us who, who don't have our own biological or, or nuclear family, the idea that we're part of the family of God is, is not meant to be a kind of you know, consolation prize. It's actually meant to be something that is, is fundamental and, and real to us. Um, so I have a, a physical brother. I have a physical mother and father. And in Jesus, I have many spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons, of da and, sons and daughters as well. Um, in terms of, of LGBT um, agendas. Um, most people I know are not activists and most people I know want, want to live a quiet life um, and are not necessarily campaigning for anything. Um, I, I have concerns about some of the societal trends and there are certain things I think are, are not going to be healthy for us. Uh, there are certain things I think some aspects of this are, I think are healthier than they have been. 
um, I think it, it's it's easier for people to talk about some of these issues today than it used to be. I think that's a good thing. Um, I wasn't in favour of the legalisation of, of gay marriage, but at the same time, I, I'm not. I don't feel worried about it because I believe that the, the gospel is is the good news for salvation for for all who believe and every society has its own way of of going away from God's word and from God's laws and God's wisdom is always wiser than human wisdom and so there's aspects of 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 our culture where I'm thinking yeah I'm not I'm, I'm concerned for that. Um, but I'm also thinking this is, this is an opportunity, I hope, for the church to offer a compelling vision, not just a physical family life, but a spiritual family life, and one that we can actually open up and invite others to, to join if they would come to Christ. So I don't know if that exactly addresses the, the question you're asking, but... Um, all sin is, is demonic. Um, and we know from, from the gospel that Satan roars and Jesus triumphs. And I, I see the... And we want to be careful before we kind of directly attribute certain things to, to Satan, but I, I, I see... Um, evidences of the spiritual battle in so many areas of life um, I see it in some aspects of some of the ideologies being promoted today and I see some aspects of it in some of the backlash to some of those ideologies as well so ultimately we're all in the same boat uh, we need the mercy of, of Jesus Christ um, and my marching orders from, from the Lord Jesus are the sin I should be most concerned about is my own. The sin I should be most troubled by is my own. Whilst at the same time offering to all people the life that is found in Jesus. Because if hey, if Jesus can save an idiot like me, anyone can get in on this. And it doesn't matter how far, you know, I, I speak to people all the time, people will say something like, if you knew what I've really done and how much of a train wreck my life has been, I'm not sure Jesus would want anything to do with me. I'm not sure Jesus should have anything to do with me. And our answer to that always has to be Jesus is just way better at saving than we are at sinning and however monumental you believe your sin to be you're not that special and there's enough in the, in the cross of Jesus for you so all of us whether we, whatever our kind of subcultural 
expressions happen to be wherever we land on political issues whatever our lifestyle we all need the same amount of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ thank you ah there is someone over there thank you um, <clears throat> is there a right answer to this question what do I do if someone insists that I use their preferred pronouns that don't match their sex assigned at birth if I insist on using their birth sex pronouns, they might cut me off, alienation. If I change pronouns, am I caving to the spirit of the times? So am I being persecuted or am I just being a jerk? <laughs> Thank you, that's a great question. Um, there's a fine line, isn't there, sometimes? Um, that, is such a, that is such a big issue. Um, I don't think there's one right answer that fits every situation. Um, the reason for that is because I think there are so many factors that we need to be bearing in mind and, and trying to honor as we walk through that. Um, one of those factors is, is this person a believer or not? That does shape um, how I would respond. If, if someone knows nothing of, of Jesus Christ, um, I want to be as, in one sense, as flexible as I can be. I don't want that person, I don't want to give them the impression they can only have a conversation on my terms if they're going to hear the gospel. Um, I, I want to be hospitable. And if one of us is going to feel uncomfortable, I'd rather it was me. And um, if it will help someone to come to hear about Jesus. Proverbs 26 helps me here. Um, Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. In the book of Proverbs, the fool is someone who, who doesn't know the Lord. It's not meant to be a kind of pejorative in, in the way that we use the word. It's talking about someone who doesn't know God. So saying, don't answer them according to their false beliefs, lest you become like them yourself. So we're thinking, okay, there, there are certain ways of thinking someone who's not a Christian might have, if you run with that wrong way of thinking, you might end up actually being more shaped by that thinking than, than they end up being shaped by you. So don't answer a fool according to their folly, lest you be like them in your own, uh, lest you, you be like him yourself. Thank you, Proverbs 26, verse four, that answers the question. Proverbs 26, verse five says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what we do there is we think, okay, option A, this is a contradiction, the Bible is untrue, we, you know, they were right all along, let's throw it out. Or Proverbs is saying, this is a wisdom issue. Sometimes running with someone's wrong way of thinking is not wise because you end up adopting it yourself. Sometimes running with someone's wrong way of thinking is wise because it's the way to show them further down the road that it doesn't actually work. So how do we know which of those situations we're in? We, we pray for wisdom. Um, which makes me think, I can't say it's always wrong to use someone's preferred pronoun, and I can't say it's never wrong to use someone's preferred pronoun. Uh, for myself, that the further someone is from any kind of understanding of the Christian faith, the more likely I am 
to use their preferred pronoun again because I, I want to be hospitable. I want the awkwardness to fall on me and not on them. I won't hide what I'm believing. So in that sense, I'm not, I'm not giving them a sort of false impression of my beliefs. This, this happened a, a while back. I was talking to a, a student who, um, born male, identifying as a, as a woman, and made it very clear what I, what I believed. And because this was a first conversation, and I was hoping you know, there'd be opportunities in, in the future to talk about this more, I adopted that person's pronouns. Um, because I was hoping, I, I, I don't want to close down the conversation before it's already begun. And now, if it was someone at church who knows a lot more and, and is familiar with the Bible's teaching, if, if that person suddenly turned around and said, I, I'm insisting you call me this, I'd be much less likely to. Um, so I, th I think Proverbs 26 is, is saying it's a wisdom issue. There may be times when actually that's the wise thing to do. There may be times when it's not, it's not the wise thing to do. And let, let's, let, let's kind of give each other space on that. Um, I think that we, we shouldn't sort of say there's one rule that fits every situation. So I hope that helps. There are so many times like this where we, we want the Bible to give us a clear, these are the words to say in response to this situation. This is exactly what you should do. It frustrates us that it doesn't. It's actually good that it doesn't because part of what God wants to do in our lives, Romans 12 verse 2, is to renew our minds. He doesn't tell us what to think at every point of life. He wants to teach us how to think. And so he doesn't always tell us what decision to make. He tells us how to make the decision. And there are times when we have to kind of think, okay, there's not a clear prescribed thing to do in this given situation. God is wanting me to learn wisdom and to learn how to respond well. Thank you. Yes. This already with your previous answer, but um, I have a family member who's very close to me who struggles deeply with these issues that you've talked about, and they are a believer, a very strong believer, um, and I, I know we're called as believers to correct and encourage each other, you know, and accept that encouragement ourselves. But how do we, how do we toe the line between love and correction and speaking the truth with grace when it comes to those who are very close to us that we know are believers? Thank you so much. Um, yeah, that is the question. Uh, Jesus Christ, we're told in, in John 1, I think verse 12, was full of grace and truth. So what we don't get to do is play grace against truth. Uh, the two go together in Jesus. And so we can never use one as an excuse for the lack of the other one. So we can't say, well, I'm just being truthful. I may not be gracious, but I'm being truthful. Because if it's ungracious, it's not really true. Biblical truth is gracious. And similarly, we can't just say, well, I'm just going to sort of emit grace and never say anything that anyone would ever disagree with. That's not biblical grace. Biblical grace is truth-telling. Now, there's, a, again, a wisdom issue in terms of 
how much we say in any given situation, um, what to say, what not to say, there's a time to speak, there's a time to listen. Um, when Jesus meets people, he doesn't give them the full download of everything every time he meets someone. He'll, he'll kind of hone in on some aspects of his message. Um, and I think that, that will be the same for us. So in, in, encount, in our encounters with those who are very dear to us, who may have different viewpoints to us on some of these things, I want two things to always be very apparent. I want them to know how much Jesus means to me. That, that his, my loyalty to him comes before everything else. Um, that he's first in my life. I also want them to know how much they mean to me. That I, I, I feel privileged to know them. Um, that my life wouldn't be the same without their presence and friendship. And whether we choose in a given moment to say something or to not say something, whether we choose to say this much or that much, if the end result is they know how much Jesus means to us and they know how much they mean to us, I think we will have done the right thing. And I think we pray for wisdom about how much to say in a given situation. Something I sometimes do is... Um, when I'm, I'm with someone who might not necessarily know my, my beliefs on these things, but they're opening up about their own situation, their own beliefs, their own lifestyle, what they're doing, that kind of thing. I don't necessarily want to swoop in right then and there with a full exposition of these are all the ways I'm not on the same page as you. I also don't want to say nothing at all because that can sound a bit disingenuous when eventually it comes up later on that you do think something differently and they feel as though well, why didn't you never say that earlier? Why, you know, why are you springing on at me now? So one of the things I sometimes do is, as we're at the beginning stages of talking about these things is I might say to someone, we're probably going to find that we land in slightly different places on this. Um, and I'm happy to chat about that sometime. So I'm giving someone notice <laughs> that there's a difference I'm putting the reality of that, of that difference on the table. They're welcome, they're welcome to take it then and there and say, okay, so what do you think and why do you differ? And where, you know. But I'm also not insisting on getting into it then and there. In other words, I'm showing them my friendship with them isn't contingent on my agreeing with them. That this difference is here and it exists and... We, it's not an insurmountable obstacle to us being friends. And I'm basically giving them agency of if that's something that matters enough that they want to bring it up right away, or if it's something that I'm showing them, this difference is here, I don't have to go into it now in order for us to be friends, I still want to hear more of your story. So it's showing them, I hope, that yeah, there's, that I have these beliefs and um, I'm very eager to talk I'm very willing to talk about them I'm not hiding them but I'm also not kind of insisting on going through them right this very moment so it just kind of gives them a bit of notice and it gives them time to figure out what they want to do with that the, the reality of that difference and again every, every situation is, is different um, when everyone, someone gives, whenever anyone asks me a question which is along the lines of what do I say when, 99% of the time I, I, my answer is I don't know, I, I can't know. 
without knowing the prehistory of your friendship and the dynamic and things you've said in the past. And I, I can't possibly know what the right thing to say is. But in, in my experience, sometimes, and again, how I respond might vary depending on what I know about the person. Um, so on more than one occasion, someone has said to me some version of, I don't think we can be friends if you don't agree with me. And my response can be very, very different depending on who the person is and what I know about them. Um, there was one guy I, I had got to know well when I was um, working at a, at a previous church. Not a Christian, gay man, in a same-sex partnership. They were not at that stage in a marriage. Um, and as we were getting to know each other, and he was sharing some of his story, he, he knew that I was a Christian. He said, you know, he, he was beginning to say, what, what do you think about this? And I was beginning to, to share some of my beliefs. He said, I, we, we might not be able to be friends if you can't affirm me. Now, part of his story was having been very badly bullied and even physically beaten up for being gay. And because of that, I thought it's understandable that he would say what he's just said to me, given what he's been through. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to suddenly agree with him, but it does mean I, really, I do want to be sensitive to how he's been treated. And so I said to him, I don't know if this will be enough for you, but I promise I will never demean you. And I never want you to be treated less than what you are worth in God's sight. Um, and he was happy with that. In other words, he needed he need to, to know if he could trust me, even if we differed. Now, on another occasion, it was a... Um, it was a, a, a student who was... I think had had too much identity politics kind of imbibed. Um, and they said, well, you can't be my friend unless you affirm me. And I, I said to them, that's not how friendship works. And if, if that's how you're going to go through life, your only friend is going to be Siri. <laughs> because real, real friendship depends on being f friends with a real person who's not the same as you. And if a precondition of friendship is you have to agree with what I say, that's never going to be a real friendship. We can't have friendship with God on those terms. And I felt with this, with this particular student, it wasn't a, a comment that was born out of painful experience. It was a comment born out of uh, cockiness. And I thought, actually, this is, that's, just not a, that's just not a wise way to... You're just not going to have a, a good life if that's the way you approach friendship. So again, what you say will... will be so dependent on what you know about the other person. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I recently had a conversation with a friend regarding uh, gay marriage, and in the process, I, I really, I really screwed it up. I not only like offended them with the gospel, but also offended them with what I said. And I was wondering if you had any advice for remedying that. Thank you. Gosh, thank you for for sharing that with with us. <laughs> Um, thank you for your honesty we all screw things up um, 
if God was only ever to use us when we don't ever screw things up, God would never use any of us at all. Um, so part of, I think, why God allows us to screw things up is because it means we can learn and we can think, okay, okay, if I had a do-over with that, I would, do it, I would definitely do it this way and not that way, and now I know that. So that's one good that can come out of this, is to think, okay, this is an opportunity for me to, to be wiser next time. And all of us go through that in, in so many areas of life. Um, for many of us, that actually is one of the, the, some of the most significant lessons we've learned in life have been through messing something up. The second thing is, you now have an opportunity to, to show that the, the friend you were talking to, um, this is what being a Christian looks like. Being a Christian doesn't look like, hey, we're people that are better than everybody else and don't sin. A Christian is, we, we mess things up, but here's what we do with our sin when we do, we repent. And if there's someone we need to go say sorry to, we go and say sorry to them and ask their forgiveness. And so I had this recently. I, I, was, I ran into someone via Zoom, which is a bizarre thing that I never thought I would... That sentence would have made no sense two years ago. Um, but I was on a, a, a Zoom conference call and I saw someone thought, oh, man, I've not seen that. I've not seen him for like four or five years. And I thought, oh my goodness, last time I saw him, I said a really stupid, crass, insensitive thing to him. So my initial thought was, oh man, I, you know, I, I wish he wasn't on the call. <laughs> and then I thought, no, idiot. Um, this is great that he's on the call. You, you now get an opportunity to say to him, listen, I feel really bad. I don't know if you remember this, but five years ago I said this to you. That was such a, an insensitive thing to say, and I'm sorry ask your forgiveness on that um, we're not being a bad witness to someone when we say to them I, I handled that conversation really poorly and I said some things I now wish I hadn't and I'm sorry we don't, we don't try and excuse it, we don't sort of try and use euphemisms we, we say I, I'm, I got that wrong and here's how I got that wrong and I'm sorry um, if you give me the, the, the privilege and honor of having these kinds of conversations with you in the future, I hope I, can, I hope I can be a better friend and a better representative of Jesus. And please don't judge Jesus by me, but please do judge me by Jesus. And I've, I found those, those moments are they're kind of humiliating, they're embarrassing. Um, Man, God, it, it's so often those moments God most uses. Because again, it's a, our strength is in our weakness. So I found it's actually in those pride-swallowing moments of having to repent to someone else that actually the gospel becomes most real to them. And it, it just confirms that the Christians are not the people who are never jerks. It's just that the Christians are people who, who can come clean when we have been and for him, it's actually safe for God to know the worst things about us and we have forgiveness in him and that gives us the freedom to ask forgiveness of other people. I hope that, I hope that helps.
Got one time for one more, or are you? Make this the. We'll make this the last one. As a church, it's very important, and I just wanted to get your opinion on how should we think about the doctrine of concupiscence and then same-sex attraction, gender identity thoughts, all of these different things that go through our mind. How do we deal with that issue in light of that doctrine? Thank you. Um, that's not a, a short question to end on. So this, this answer will be inadequate, but it will, I hope will be a, at least give a, a starting point. Um, here's, here's a few things I think we need to to keep bearing in mind. The first is sin taints every part of life. Um, the, the theological term for that is, um, is total depravity. It means there's no part of life where I can say I don't need Jesus for that. So I should expect to see evidences of my fallenness in every single aspect of my life. Um, and the great news is Jesus wants to get involved in every part of our life and to, to bring newness to every part of our life. The second thing is, Jesus shows us in Matthew 5, it's not just a physical act that is sinful, it is, it is the heart attitude. It's not just am I physically committing a sexual sin, am I looking at someone lustfully? So I think sometimes Christians have made a distinction between do you have the attractions or do you act on the attractions? Jesus is showing us mentally acting on the attractions is acting on them and is sinning. And if you are mentally rehearsing for a particular sin, it's going to be very hard to physically resist. So it's not simply about physical behavior. It's about how we think. Um, it's about our attitude and, and those kinds of things. And then the third thing I'd want to say is the distinction I see the Bible making isn't between um, thinking about a sin and committing it. It's between temptation and sin, which I don't think are the same thing in the Bible. So in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from temptation, forgive us for sins. Um, the presence of a temptation in my heart reminds me that my nature has fallen, that I'm temptable in some particular way. It reminds us that I, I still need my heart to be made new. But I do think temptation is not the same as sin. Um, in James chapter one, we're told temptation gives birth to sin, and sin in turn can give birth to death. So it is possible to deal with temptation in a way that is not sinful and that is by fleeing and resisting temptation and, and seeking to, to put to death the sins that we see in our heart. Um, Paul talks in Romans 8 about putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh. And so part of our, our discipline as Christians is to think, okay, Lord, where, what are the areas of my heart that I am most seeing I need you to change? Um, what 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 sins am I particular, particularly conscious of keep kind of bubbling up within my own heart? And how can I, how can I put those things to death? Uh, what is driving those sins? What idols might be lurking behind them? What unbelief is driving them? You know, whatever it is, help me to, to unroot that at the very cause of it. So 
I hope that gives a bit of a, a framework for that. Thank you.